I'm Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. You guys, I'm so excited. I'm going to talk about herbs for sore throats, and Rin's going to talk about those classic old formulas like Hoxie and Essiac. But first, we have to do the thing where we say that we are not doctors. Oh, we're herbalists and holistic health educators. Yeah, don't forget that part. That's still my part. (laughs) Uh, The ideas we discuss in our podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the U.S. These discussions are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different, so the things we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but they will give you some information to think about and to research further. And we want to remind you that your health is your personal responsibility, so don't take my advice for it. The final decision in any course of therapy, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is always yours, mm-hmm. which is awesome. A uh, couple of quick announcements. First off, um, book plates. If you have ordered a book and you want a fancy book plate, shoot us an email at info at commonwealthherbs.com and we will send you one. And It helps if you give us the address you want us to mail it to. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, send us your address. Yeah. <laughs> And we will mail it to you. Yeah. Um, Okay, another thing coming up soon is Herbstock. So that's going to be June 2nd and 3rd, Saturday and Sunday, over in Somerville, which is a part of the Boston, if you're not from around here. Uh, Don't tell the Somervillains I said that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's where it is, and it's fantastic, and we're looking forward to teaching some cool classes there. Um, and hanging out in the marketplace and meeting a thousand people. Yeah. Um, what was it, 3,000 last year? Some huge yeah, number. a lot of humans. Plus, we'll be bringing books, we'll be signing them, we will have a fresh new batch of the Herb Oracle and study cards. Um, it's going to be such a fun time. And it's just so great to see the whole herbal community like all in one place together having a party. It's yeah. awesome. So if you can make it, then make it. Yeah. Yeah. June 2nd and 3rd. Mm-hmm. And uh, then more info at herbstock.org. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then also, um, if we might, just uh, ask quickly for reviews. Because when you review podcasts, not just ours, but any podcast that you like, when you review it, then that helps people find it. Because apparently the search algorithms are based on reviews. So if you like our podcast and you want people to find it, then... Toss a review into iTunes, and we appreciate it very much. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So, what have you got lined up for us today? Well, um, on Wednesday night, we went to see the amazing Leah and Chloe and Rising Appalachia. And Rising Appalachia, if you're not familiar with this band, um, is the like official band of herbalism. And they used to be the unofficial band of herbalism, but at some point they just became the official band of herbalism in the United States. And they sing um, traditional music, lots of traditional Appalachian folk music, and also some Gaelic stuff thrown in there, and then also a bunch of world music. And they integrate West African musicians into their band, um, and also some South American um, musicians and so those sounds all blend together in this rich collaboration that is really really cool Um, they've studied in Bulgarian tiny villages learning Bulgarian folk traditions um, in an attempt to preserve that music so that it doesn't die out and 
It's just, their work is amazing. So, um, we're going to put links to them in the show notes, but even you can just search on YouTube for Rising Appalachia and you will hear their beautiful, amazing music. And I love to sing along to their music because I like to sing and their music is very singable. And during the concert, I was just kind of overwhelmed with the realization that I need to make more time in my life for art. Um, Not that what we do every day isn't art. It is. But um, I need to make sure that I'm making music every day, not just listening to music that somebody else made, but making my own music every day. That is soul medicine. And it doesn't matter if your music is good or whatever. Like, you just need to sing or play an instrument or do something or whistle. It doesn't matter. But but there is, um, like, actual resonance that happens in the body when you make music yourself. And though that vibrational stuff, it's kind of like cats purring. It's like there's a health benefit to that. Mm. And it's really, really important. Plus just the nourishment to your soul of, of music, like real music. And lately um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, which seems like the sort of responsible adult thing to do and um and of course you're listening to a podcast right now so please keep doing that but um and then the other thing i've been listening to a lot is like kind of ambient electronica that is sort of like background music that won't disturb much while while i'm writing and that's pleasant but it's not nourishing and so i just was really just Overwhelmed, but in a in a super positive way, with like wave after wave of remembrance that this is this is nourishment for my soul that I'm missing. It's like it's like after you've eaten a bunch of junk food because you've been really busy, and then you have like broccoli, and your body's like, "Thank you so much," and you're like, "Oh my god, you're so welcome." Um, it was like that. So I sang all night Wednesday night at the concert, and I felt so happy, and then. Thursday, I had to run around town and run errands, and normally when I do that, I would listen to podcasts, and I was like, no, I'm not going to, and so instead, I listened to Rising Appalachia songs and sang, um, because I was driving, so I sang in the car, and I sang loud in the car, and I woke up this morning with a really sore throat, um, because it's important to sing but maybe going from zero to singing all day long at the top of my lungs was perhaps <laughs> <laughs> like vocal cords are a muscle you got to exercise them um they're not actually muscles they're like tendons or something that i don't know <laughs> they're connective tissue but whatever you got to exercise them so um so i want to first off invite you to make more music and then secondly i want to share with you all of my favorite herbs for a sore throat and Um, Most of these herbs are going to be applicable whether your sore throat is because you're getting sick or because you sang all day at the top of your lungs. Um, But uh, but whatever reason you have a sore throat, these are some really good friends. The first one is calamus. And... Um, to be honest, although although you might know, Rin, I don't actually understand the mechanism of action of calamus for a sore throat. I, what I know is that I was taught that it is good for sore throats due to overuse. And because I was taught that and because we talk a lot, um, 
we started doing it and we both find it very effective but to be honest I don't actually know the mechanism of action behind it I think it's pretty much just that it's a pungent warming and bitter herb and so it moves some blood into the tissue and it maybe stimulates some uh, some fluid movement or it certainly does you know get some saliva flowing and get things moving there um kind of lubrication yeah it's not an analgesic effect um so yeah I think it's basically just those things well it works really great um, and it works well if you chew on little bits of the root. Mm. Um, and if you don't have little bits of the root, you can totally just take some tincture instead. But I have to say that chewing on little bits of the root actually is a little bit more effective. Yeah, I'll often of course, keep, a, I keep a little tin of, um, you know, chipped or sliced uh, calamus root dried uh, in the office. And I'll, I'll often grab that when it's like hour three or four of, <laughs> of a teaching day. Yeah. And uh, just chew on little bits of it through the rest of the day. And maybe it really just is as simple as the saliva, because also having something in your mouth that you're chewing on is, even before it was a bitter and pungent and warming and all that stuff, that, that alone is going to increase saliva too. So yeah, whatever, it is super soothing. And then um, there are some demulcent herbs that I like to cold infuse. And it is, it's basically like lotion for your throat, except not as gross as that sounds. Um, it, it just imagine all the soothing aspects of what that sounds like and none of the, ew, it would be gross to eat lotion. Um, although when you make your own lotion, then it's all food-grade materials and you could theoretically eat it. It would probably taste kind of weird, but... Um, anyway, so this would be marshmallow root or cinnamon or my favorite, linden. I really love a nice linden cold infusion. Um, it's not too thick and slimy, but it is thick and slimy enough that it has that very gentle coating on the throat. Um, but it's not hard to drink. Marshmallow root, if you really get it good and infused, and cinnamon can do this too, um, they can get kind of a little slimy and maybe not the most pleasant thing to drink. If that happens, just water it down. It's totally fine. But linden is really my favorite. Linden may also be my favorite because of the really awesome stress-relieving aspects that linden has. And it's just we like to call it the hug in a mug, and it, it just really is. So um, I never want a, I never want to pass up that opportunity either. I always, you know, like anytime I can get more hugs into my day, I'm like, yes, that would be better. So I really, really love that. Um, these are three herbs that are also going to be excellent for heartburn or any other kind of like burny pain in the throat or anywhere in the digestive tract. And again, you got to make them cold. So what I mean by that is you're just going to take a jar or your French press and put in, um, you know, a handful. I usually put like a half an inch or an inch of herb in the bottom of whatever jar I'm using and then fill that up with room temperature water. It doesn't have to be refrigerated water, but it should not be hot water, not heated in any way, just room temperature. And then you just sit it on the counter and wait and you wait you know, four hours, eight hours, and I like to make them overnight before I go to bed. Um, but this morning when I woke up, I did not do that because my throat didn't hurt yesterday. So I just made it early this morning and I waited like four hours and then I started drinking it. And 
Um, the reason that we do this in cold water is because the part of the plant that is going to create that soothing, moistening, sort of slippery aspect is a polysaccharide. And polysaccharides don't release in hot water. They stay bound up in the plant itself, in the plant matter. So you can make a hot water infusion of linden or, or cinnamon or marshmallow, and you'll get things out. And that'll be good, but you won't get the polysaccharide content. You won't get the demulcent content. That will just stay in the plant matter. So when you make it with room temperature water, then those constituents come out and they really provide this moistening aspect. You can, if you like, make it starting off with hot water the night before and then just let it cool and overnight you will get both the heat soluble aspects and the cool soluble aspects. Um, and if you do that, then you want to cover it real good because at least linden and cinnamon both have some volatile oil content, so you don't want that to escape and evaporate off overnight. But um, for my purposes and for, for just a regular sore throat, um, you just set it up in some cool water, wait four hours or more, and then drink it down and it feels great. And then the last, um, or the, the last thing I wanted to bring up today um, for soothing a sore throat is herb-infused honeys, which are really on my mind because we've been thinking about them while I was just editing some videos for the medicine-making module, and uh, I was just editing the honey, uh, honey medicine segment, and I, I can't even tell you guys how much I love infused herbal-infused honeys. Now, if you don't know how to do it, I'm going to explain it here, but you can check out the uh, medicine-making uh, online video course that we have on our website if you want to see like live and in person how to do it. But here's the basic instructions. You take yourself some fresh herbs. You can't do this with dry herbs. got to be fresh herbs. And you stuff them in a jar. And then you pour honey over them, and then you wait for a couple of weeks, four weeks even. And at the end, what you have is all of the liquid that was in the plant matter that you put in gets sucked out into the honey because honey is hydrophilic. It's water loving. And it, <clears throat> it will suck out the water and that water will mix with the honey and it thins the honey out. And so now you have all of the liquid constituents of whatever plant you put in and the honey. And it is so good. And honey is nice for a sore throat anyway, just right off the spoon. But honey with fresh basil in it is really good. Or fresh sage or even fresh linden flowers. Mm. Um, so, so, so delicious. And so then it's not just soothing, but it's also delightful. And any time that you can make your herbal medicine delightful, that is also, it's medicine for the soul. It's good stuff. So that's, um, that's about all I can talk about because my throat really hurts. <laughs> I need to go get some more linden. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, so switching gears a little bit, what I wanted to discuss this week um, was something that had come up in a class a little while ago. We had been teaching our advanced students uh, about our herbal approaches to cancer and the place that herbs have 
in that whole journey. So um, one of the things we talk about in this class is that there are a few herbal formulas or like classical cancer cure-all sort of remedies that you'll see people refer back to over and over again. Um, I mean, even in, uh, there's like some Facebook groups out there that people discuss herbal remedies and things in. And just last week I saw another one where somebody was talking about this certain kind of cancer and somebody jumped in and said, ah, take Essiac or take Hoxie or whatever else. This still happens. Um, but these are, uh, there's two I wanted to discuss and these have been around, both of them starting in around the 1920s. Um, and originally they were like, uh, like a patent medicine or like a, uh, like a secret formula or something. And then they sort of made their way out into general knowledge. Um, and each of them has their own kind of history and, and controversy and all of this kind of back and forth about whether it works or whether it's quackery or this or that. Um, and you know, today I'd, I'd kind of like to actually leave most of that discussion to the side um, but what I'm really interested in is, as herbalists, as people who understand a little bit about plants and how to think about them and to, to understand the way they work and how they're applied in humans, um, we need to keep that part of our minds active when we go and look at one of these kind of, um, kind of formulas. So by that I mean, if you look at something like, say, the Hoxie formula, um, we can take a look at the ingredients that are in there, and then we can do a little um, kind of a basic analysis about them and try to understand what, if anything, this formula would do in a human body. So um, that, let's start with Hoxie. So this was um, designed by a guy named Harry Hoxie back in the 1920s, and um, he seemed to really believe in this, and he... he advised a lot of people to, to take this herbal formula. He actually also had a, a topical paste um, that he would, he would work with as well, which was pretty caustic and had a bunch of heavy metals and other kind of scary things in there. Um, so we'll leave that one to the side for today. Yeah, but Just because things are old doesn't mean that they're automatically good. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, you know, he was, he was convicted of practicing medicine without a license a bunch of times and kind of like kept rebounding and ultimately um, ended up moving his clinics down to Tijuana. Um, to avoid uh, the FDA from giving him <laughs> trouble. So, um, and they're still down there today, actually. Um, I was checking around online today. You can go to, you know, hoxyclinic.whatever, and, you know, um, if you feel like going to Mexico, you can do that. But, uh, but before that, let's uh, take a look at what, what they might actually end up giving you. So the original ingredients in the Hoxie formula were something like uh, licorice root, red clover blossoms, burdock root, uh, Stalingia root, uh, barberry root again, poke root, um, cascara sagrada bark, uh, buckthorn bark, some prickly ash uh, bark, and then uh, also some potassium iodide, which is basically just a, a mineral salt um, or like a combination of, of potassium and iodine together. And that was all, um, you know, made a bunch of herbal extracts and mixed into some water with the potassium iodide in it and and that was given to people. So one of the ways that I see people look at these or talk about them, especially if they don't have any herbal training, is just to sort of take it as a, as a received formula, as some sort of mysterious thing where you put all these plants together and then suddenly, pow, you've got a cancer-killing machine, right? You've got a, you've got a cure-all. 
Um, but that's not really the way the world works, or the way medicine works, or the way herbs work. Or the um, way bodies work. Yeah. So, um, we want to try to resist that. And and I would, you know, I would say to do this with any, any classical formula that you encounter. Don't assume that just because somebody came up with it once upon a time, and because it's got maybe, you know, uh, a century or just some number of decades of use that uh, it has to be that way in order for it to work um, that it would be better I would suggest to analyze this based on what we understand about the individual plants and about the, the categories of action that we know them to have in the body so you could do this kind of one at a time and go down and say alright well what are all the actions I know that licorice has well it's a demulcent it has some uh, anti-inflammatory capacities. It's an it's an adaptogenic herb. Um, you know, it can be a nice digestive if there's some irritation. It's kind of moistening in nature. Uh, it's a little bit warming. So we could go down and do the whole line about energetics and actions and all of that um, for each of the plants. But let's summarize a little bit. If you were to look at all the herbs that are in that formula and look at the actions um, list that you would get if you were to kind of take the, the major ones uh, from each of those herbs and, you know, allow there to be some crossover, then you would end up with something like this. Here we have a set of herbs that is going to be alterative, uh, which is to say that it's going to improve the quality of circulating fluids in the body, um, whether by improving blood circulation or lymphatic movements, by being nutritive and providing some, some uh, raw materials for your body to make healthy blood out of. Um, or maybe by improving the, um, the detoxifying and eliminative capacities of the body. So that's a big umbrella category, but um, many of the herbs in this formula, licorice, red clover, burdock, barberry, basically all of the herbs in here would fit into there in one way or another. We also have a lot of lymphatic agents going on here. Um, the red clover, the poke root, um, to some extent prickly ash, uh, these are herbs that are going to help to move lymph in the body. And that's really important. We need to keep those fluids moving if things are going to be healthy and happy inside of you. And in regards to cancer treatment in particular, we would be looking at that as relevant to the function of the immune system. Because a lot of your immune system lives in the lymphatic channels and gets around the body that way. So we keep those waters flowing and that enables that aspect of your defense to function well. Um, okay. We also have uh, collagog herbs, or ones that make the bile flow. And this has a lot to do with digestion, but it also has to do with detoxifying, right? Bile is one of the, one of the roots of elimination uh, for your body. So there's some things that um, your body is going to be breaking down and getting rid of by excreting them in the bile. So we want to keep that moving. Um, okay. Some of these herbs have immunostimulating effects, most notably the poke root and um, the prickly ash, and uh, as I understand it, stilingia root as well. That's an herb I don't really work with, um, but it has that reputation, um, particularly with um, historical uses for that, for that herb uh, as an immune-stimulating agent. And so, you know, again, if you're looking at why would that be relevant in a case of cancer, well... You know, if you don't have um, adequate immune response, then your body's not going to identify that there's a tumor and help you to fight it off, or even better, catch it before it grows too big. Um, it's worth noting, and this is another thing we spend a lot of time on in our in our cancer class, that uh, cells becoming cancerous or precancerous is actually pretty normal. 
right? It's happening in most of us, um, most of our bodies on a regular basis. But we don't all get cancer uh, because uh, our bodies have a, a mechanism of response for that kind of thing. So there are specific aspects of your immune system that are on the lookout for cells that are doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Um, like having an endless appetite for sugar and refusing to die <laughs> and multiplying rapidly and doing other things that kind of define um, you know, a, a tumorous uh, situation or, or a cancer situation. So anyway, immune stimulants would help by bumping up that degree of surveillance and um, kind of bringing the fight to the, to the situation. Okay. Um, some of the herbs in the formula here are also circulatory stimulants, most notably the prickly ash bark. Um, that really gets the blood moving. If you ever taste prickly ash, you can sort of get a, a sense for that um, just from the flavor of it. It has a it has a tingly flavor. Um, you like get a saliva inducing. Yeah, yeah, kind of kind of tickles your tongue a little bit, and and you you salivate a bit more. Um, but with prickly ash, with with other herbs that have that same kind of tingly taste to it, like um, like a good quality echinacea tincture or Spilanthes tincture, if you ever work with that. Um, those herbs that have that kind of um, tingly feeling on the tongue, they often do stimulate the movement of blood and fluids in the body. So again, that's important because we need to keep that sort of inner sea or those inner waters moving if we're going to keep good health. All right, and then finally, um, at least two of the herbs in this blend, and you could argue for three or four of them, have a laxative effect as well. And, um, you know, again, the basic idea with this is uh, we need to improve the elimination of waste products in the body. So this blend and um, this set of herbs, uh, we can understand that it's, it's really coming from a perspective that regards cancer as being an outgrowth of what used to be called the bad blood syndrome. And this is basically the idea that if your inner waters, your inner fluids aren't circulating well, they aren't nourished well your body's not cleansing them effectively and getting rid of the waste products in a timely manner, then you're going to start to have some problems. And, um, you know, cancers or tumors were one of the kind of end stages of the bad blood syndrome. It's like this problem had been going on for a long time and it wasn't addressed early. And there were probably lots of minor expressions along the way before it it's uh, culminated in the formation of a tumor. So, um, that's maybe not the, the way or the only way we think about cancer in the modern world, um, but that's the sort of underlying theory behind a formula like this. And I say that to emphasize again that there's no magic about these particular herbs uh, getting together. Um, it's really just if you were to you know swap out a bunch of lymphatic agents in place of the red clover, maybe you don't have red clover, maybe you put in some calendula or some... Um, Self-heal. Some, some self-heal, yeah. yeah. Some other uh, lymph-moving <laughs> herb. Maybe you don't have poke today, but you've got red root. You don't have barberry, but you've got Oregon grape, right? Um, there are lots of options for you to construct a formula that would be serving basically the same functions uh, and having the same kinds of action in the body, um, but wouldn't require you know, all or even any of the same specific plants. Okay. So we can do a similar thing with the, the ESIAC formula. Um, so this one, again, it was um, invented or promoted in the, the 1920s. The story with ESIAC um, is that there was a nurse up in Canada named Renee Case, 
and Essiac is her name spelled backwards. She, she claimed to have gotten the formula from um, an Ojibwe um, First Nations individual. Um, people argue about whether that actually happened or not. Um, some of those arguments make sense, and some of them are kind of specious, like uh, most of those herbs in the formula didn't actually grow native in uh, North America. Well, yeah, but um, by 1920, there had been about a couple hundred years worth of yeah. time for those plants to become naturalized, and the um, indigenous peoples are often very interested in plants that come along with their colonizers. And, um, <laughs> Uh, quickly learn to adapt to their medicine and incorporate that into their tradition. So plus, I mean, just like when a new neighbor moves in and you go to meet them because you're interested, the same. Like when you're in tune with your environment and a new plant moves in, you're like, "Oh, who are you? Let me get to know you." Yeah. So I mean, it's certainly possible, and and I think in in um, in some sources it's been documented that there were there was um, tribal use of uh, all of the herbs involved in this uh, blend, but. Anyway, it's all neither here nor there. Um, so the, the original um, Essiac blend was a combo of burdock, again, <laughs> sheep sorrel, um, which is a, a sour herb, uh, slippery elm bark, and then Indian rhubarb. So um, in some sources, in some later versions, um, or like variants of the Essiac formula, you might see a few other herbs added. Um, I've seen people talk about putting watercress, blessed thistle, red clover and kelp into uh, their Essiac uh, variant. Um, There's an interesting iodine connection in both of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you look at just crossover between these two, right, you see the burdock, um, in some cases the red clover, the, like you say, the iodine element is in there. Um, in both cases we have some uh, demulcent herbs, you know, that's that's kind of stronger in the Essiac, where you get the slippery elm going on there. That's a very strong demulcent. Um, so they have some similarities. You know, both of these could be described overall as being alterative blends, or as, as uh, formulas that are oriented towards that bad blood syndrome, towards improving the, the health and the quality of circulating fluids in the body. And so again, if we do an action summary here, um, we're going to see a lot of similarities. We're going to see some demulcent herbs, some laxative herbs, some collagogs or bile movers, lymphatics, and also nutritives. Um, you know, the burdock is a nutritive in the sense that it feeds your gut flora. It's kind of a very modern perspective on burdock, though. Um, certainly kelp is, has been long considered primarily a nutritive agent um, for its mineral, mineral values and, and other, other reasons. But um, So, you know, the, the actions list there is, is very similar in nature. Um, and again, you know, there's nothing, nothing super special about combining burdock, sorrel, slippery elm, and rhubarb together. Um, it's all just a matter of what is this going to accomplish in the body. So um, again, the basic idea is make sure your liver is humming along, make sure you're not getting your poop stuck for too long at a time, <laughs> uh, that your blood is moving around, that you're, you're decently nourished, um, that your organs of elimination are functioning well, and... Um, so, uh, in some analyses of, of the plants in Essiac or in Hoxie, um, some of these plants have been found to have anti-tumor activity. Usually that's been taking place in a petri dish study, sometimes in a mouse model study. Um, very rarely have these things been evaluated for efficacy in human subjects, and oftentimes when they are, the results are not super, like, blow your mind kind of a thing. 
Um, but what I would like y'all to understand is that if these formulas are effective or to the extent that they can be useful as part of a larger protocol, it's not necessarily because they have tumor killing activity, because they're going to go in there and hunt out the tumor cells and destroy them. It's more about improving the terrain or the, the overall health of the body. And in that regard, these, these do have utility or they have a place or something like this has a place in what we would consider to be a holistic protocol for helping somebody to cope with cancer. And definitely we are, you know, these formulas are targeted at the systems of your body that are pretty involved in cancer vigilance and cancer suppression. Um, and, and they're targeted at beefing up those parts of those systems in your body. So that's good. Um, More about supporting what your body was already trying to do mm-hmm. than introducing some high-powered, you know, poison-type poison agent to kill things off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little more in line with a holistic approach, with a, with a in, to some extent, a historical approach to resolving these kind of problems. Um, but, if, but of course, when we think about that approach, it's really, and you were probably just about to say this, it's really important to recognize that people's habits were really different in that time, too, and the food that was available was really different. And so we can't necessarily expect that... Um, that you can just take this formula and it will cure everything. First off, we don't, we don't talk about cure at all because that's the medical world. But that doesn't mean that this can't have a supportive role. Um, and I think that if you want to work with this in a supportive way, that then also to think about what were the other things that people in the 1920s would have had as part of their life. And what types of dietary differences. I mean, Oreos had not been invented yet in 1920, so that's a thing. (laughs) And, you know, how did people move their bodies more and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think all of it put together can definitely be um, a beneficial aspect of of your balanced and complete cancer protocol. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, this this could be a way, I think, for us to strike a balance between, you know, some some places, some sources or reviewers or whatever will look at, at these kind of formulae and say, ah, it's just a bunch of weeds, there's nothing in there that could be useful, it's, it's quackery, it's a hoax, it's this and that. Um, and then, on the other hand, you'll have people who will defend to the death, no, this cured my cancer, and it will save everybody forever, and this is all you need. And I think that both of those extremes are unhelpful, and neither one is particularly realistic. So, if we again, if we understand that what these, are, what these formulas or things like these are trying to do is support what the body's already doing, keep your fluids moving along, keep some basic functions working, working well or improve them a bit, um, then that will lead us away from saying, hmm, I bet I can cure your cancer with this, right? Or, or certainly I can cure all cancers with this, right? So lead us away from that side. But at the same time, help us to recognize that, uh, you know, an herbal, um, herbal formula doesn't have to uh, have this panacea-like effect of, of killing all cancers everywhere forever in order to be useful, in order to be something that we could, yeah, that we could work with in, in, a, in a larger context. Which may include some chemo. It may include some radiation. You know, it's going to vary a lot depending on the individual case. Yeah, this is one of those places where every body is different. And there are so many factors that go into each individual expression of cancer that there is no one solution that's going to fit every person. Um, 
Yeah. And and we shouldn't expect there to be. It's that's okay that there isn't one. All this stuff is personal. Right. So um, so you know, think about that whenever you encounter uh, uh, ancient secret cancer cure all blend <laughs> from anywhere, wherever you know, or any kind of ancient cure all blend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for that matter, anytime you're you're looking at another herbalist's formula or a, a product you buy in the shop, you know, like do this kind of breakdown and say, all right, what do I know about each of these individual plants, or what can I find out about them? You know, what are the actions they have most strongly? Which of those seem to be relevant to the thing this is supposed to help out with? And try to get some reasonable expectations of what the herbs or the formula could accomplish in the body. And that should help you to position it in the context of a larger protocol. Um, it, may, it may help you to recognize some gaps that another herb or another intervention could fill in. Um, but it, it should help you to demystify these things a little bit. We basically don't believe in secret formulas that can never be equaled by any other blend anywhere. For that matter, we don't, you know, Katya and I, we don't particularly believe in, like, this is the one herb that is going to do the thing. It's going to solve all of your whatever. Um, we feel that uh, herbs are herbs are a little more... Um, hmm, what's the right way to say this? Um, there's always another herb. There's always another plant that can accomplish what it is you're looking for. And... Yeah. And, and particularly we get, we get on this kind of trip when it's like somebody is marketing a rare herb or a plant from some exotic locale or from across the globe or especially from places where people have already been pillaged and you know now yeah. now some of their like ancient um you know totem animal uh plants or, or things are being are being claimed by somebody else who has a has a profit motive and all of that you know like particularly when it's a case like that that gets frustrating but even when it's, you know, from a, from a pure heart or from a sustainable perspective or whatever, um, there's really never any need for you to get hooked on this one particular herb is going to do the thing for me. Because that's just not the way it plays out in real life. It's totally okay to have favorites. Um, it's totally okay to have, like, best herbal friends. Yeah. But... And there are certainly some <laughs> herbs that are, are very hard to find an, an equivalent or... You know, you'd have to formulate a few other plants together to get all of the powers of, you know, whatever your whatever your friend was. But um, that's possible too. Yeah. So maybe next time we can we can do an example of what that that game might look like. Yeah. Remember that time that we ran out of chamomile, yeah. and you tried to make chamomile out of a bunch of other plants. Yeah. It was really fun and it worked really well. This is an exercise that we do when we start to run out of plants and we need to make an herb order. Um, and then we sort of just say, this is great because it reminds me that I have substitutes and I can like work with other plants and you kind of get in a rut and you get your favorites that, that you always turn to. And then when you run out of that one, you're like, oh wait, there's these other plants that are also awesome. And I completely like wasn't paying attention to them because I was stuck in my chamomile rut or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So maybe we'll talk about that one next time. Yeah, but until then, uh, we're going to be getting ready for Herbstock. Yeah, we hope to see some of you there. See you next time. Bye.